Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. They are incredible. Well, if, if you're new here, I'm going to do something a little bit different if it's okay. I'm going to sit down uh, this message. I haven't been feeling well the last few, few days, and so um, I might need a bucket up here uh, while I preach and if I lose consciousness, I'm going to be all right, okay? Just wake me up, and I'll get back to preaching. Uh, but uh, I'm just going to uh, share my heart, and I'm going to sit down and uh, just go through a, f- a few things uh, out of this sermon series called Philippians. And we're going to be talking about how to be on mission over the next few months, and we're going to be discussing uh, today about joy. Before I do that, go ahead and turn to your neighbor, give them a high five, tell them how much you love them, tell them they look good today. You guys are amazing. Turn to your second choice, right? Tell them that you love the Seattle Seahawks, right? Come on, tell them. You love, you love the Seahawks. Amen. Well, I want to, man, I, I thank you for your continued prayers. We had an incredible service at our uh, new campus downtown last Sunday. Shane mentioned it. We had about 11 people that, uh, most of whom gave their life to Jesus for the very first time. And uh, so we were, we, were, we were blown away. There's actually one woman who, uh, and I think I'm getting my, my story right, who really has never been in church before, never read her Bible, uh, didn't know much about Jesus. The day before was contemplating taking her life. And then that Sunday night she gave, we talked about, um, if, if you remember, we talked about the little demoniac girl, right? Her head was turning around. She needed an exorcist. Paul came on the scene, and uh, she had a conversion moment. She gave her life to Jesus. And so this woman uh, Sunday night who heard the story said, man, if God can do that to that girl, God can do something in me. God can, God can heal my heart. And so it was an amazing, we had an amazing service. So thank you for your continued prayers. That's, that's what Jesus for the people is all about. That's it. We're, we're all about reaching people. Can I get an amen to that? So we had, uh, we had about 55 people who made um, either a first-time decision or a second, uh, maybe for a few, third-time decision to follow Jesus last week, but that's good. Come on, 55 people giving, making a, a commitment to follow Jesus. So, I mean, God's doing something in our church, and I want to thank you for your prayers. So if, if you're not familiar uh, with kind of what we do, we're, we're taking the church through uh, this series, this Philippian series. We're talking about how to be on mission. So today I'm going to talk about joy. I'm going to talk about meaning. How many of you want more meaning in your life? Um, we're going to talk about that, and I'm going to do my best to share just my thoughts and not throw up at the same time. Can I get an amen? All right, no pity for me. I'm fine. Okay, Uh, verse 1 of chapter uh, 1, Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, remember we talked about this last week. He's writing about mid-50s A.D. He's in jail. He's not doing prison ministry. He is doing, he's doing hard time. And uh, he needs friends to support him or he's going to starve to death. And so he got a thank you letter, or he's actually writing a thank you letter to uh, the church in Philippi for their gospel or their Jesus partnership. And next week we're going to be talking about partnership. So uh, how many of you like thank you letters, right? Okay, some of you like thank you letters. Some of you have no idea what a letter is. All right, so kind of know where we're at. We're at second service, right? We're all kind of, we've got a lot of youths here this morning uh, or this afternoon. Um, 
So Paul is, is writing this thank you letter to the church in Philippi. We, we talked about the story last week. So he begins in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. And then he goes to verse 2, grace. Everyone say grace. Grace to you in peace. Grace, he's summarizing the entire Christian story for us. He's summarizing the entire experience of the church in Philippi with Jesus. It's all grace. Everyone say grace. It's all about grace. And then he, he um, mixes grace or he combines grace with peace. Peace comes from a Hebrew word, shalom, which means God putting the world back to right. So he's saying, hey, this, you, you know this story. God put your, your world back to rights. And so grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we go to verse 3. And he goes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always. Everyone say Always. Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Everyone say joy. Come on, how many of you want more joy? About 80 of you, all right, all right. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to what? Will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We'll talk a little bit about the day of Jesus Christ today. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both of my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn. Everyone say yearn. A lot, really, he, Paul emotes here. I think Paul, like God is totally transformed his life, right? He was a religious terrorist. He had a conversion experience with Jesus, gave his life to follow Jesus. And I just, now I think Paul, when he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, he's just a hugger. How many huggers do we have here, right? How many huggers and close talkers do we have here? Okay, that's Paul, right? If you're a close talker, just back up, right? Just back up. But I think that's Paul. Paul's a hugger, right? He just loves to hug, bear hug. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love, and Paul believes in prayer. I'm going to talk a little bit more about prayer next week. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That's crucial. We'll talk about that later. Not today, but next week. So that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. Everyone say righteousness. Righteousness, which is another way of saying God's covenant faithful love. Filled with God's faithful covenant love. This is an allusion to Genesis chapter 2. Um, Paul is inferring that this church in Philippi have now inherited a new vocation. That is to be a king and a queen, right? As, as followers of Jesus, we are kings and queens, and we've been given authority I know we don't talk like this much in church, but we're given authority to exercise God's loving stewardship over creation. We'll talk more about that later. Through Jesus Christ, all of this comes through Jesus, who is uh, not king wannabe, right? He's not president-elect. He's not going to be king maybe 5,000 years from now. No, Jesus is ruling um, everything from the White House to your house to the crack house. Come on. He's over it all. He oversees it all. To the glory, he ends with a doxology, to the glory and praise of God. And everyone said, amen. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for your strength today. Thank you that you helped me um, put 
put to words what you put on my heart. And we thank you. You're here. And we just say yes to you, Holy Spirit. And Lord, I just thank you that you are so good. And Lord, we bless you today. Let Jesus be glorified today. And Lord, we're just begging, 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 begging that your team, the Dallas Cowboys, will have a good game today. In Jesus' name, we know you love the Cowboys so, so much. In your name we pray. And all my Cowboys fans said, amen. amen. God, I'm not feeling well today. Please just give me something, right? Um, I want to talk about joy. How many of you, how many of you like um, rejoicing, right? You, you like the sound of it. Um, some of you are younger, you like to party, right? All our youths here, you like, to, you like to party, you like to get out the Diet Pepsi, you like to watch a game, you like to get out the maple bars, right? And you love just to hang. Some of you like Call of Duty. You just, man, you, you love to, you love, how many of you love weekends, right? About eight of you, all right. Um, I remember when I was a young man, I loved the weekends. And so uh, rejoicing, man, we love joy. Um, we want joy. Isn't it funny, though? We, we, we live in a joyless world. Uh, but Paul, and this is the most dominant theme in this book, is Paul is joy. Rejoicing is a dominant theme in this letter to the church in Philippi. The church is committed to be um, partners with Paul, uh, to be Jesus' partners with Paul in the defense of the gospel. And joy and all of its cognates, all of its derivatives are used roughly 14 times. So Paul here is focused on joy, which is, which is ironic because Paul is, and we talked about this last week, he's, he's in a prison. And in the ancient setting, if, if, you, if you went to a prison, that was a death sentence. Um, you weren't fed anything. If you, had, if you had no homies, if you had no friends, if you had no family members who had no money, if you went to prison, not only did you lose your status as being human in this ancient setting, you would most likely die of starvation. So Paul is talking about joy in, in an ancient prison. For us, that's just like, that's incongruous, right? Paul, I mean, he's not living the American dream. He doesn't have 2.5 kids. He doesn't have a large house. Um, he doesn't have Netflix, right? He can't binge watch Stranger Things October 27th at 7 o'clock, right? And all my Stranger Thing fans said, amen, right? He, he doesn't have a dopamine, a little miniature dopamine machine we call an iPhone, right? So if you're sad, you can't Google little puppy things, right? Little puppy videos to make you feel better about yourself. So he didn't have iPhone. He didn't have like anything smart when it comes to technology. He's living in a prison and he's, he's talking about joy. When, when you read through Philippians, it's like, you, you almost feel like that joy for Paul bubbles out of him. And this is subversive, especially when Americans, those who live in the Western world, man, we, we got a lot. Can I get an amen to that? We are blessed. We have phones. We have smartphones. We have little happy machines we call iPhones. We have planes that can go up to about 500. Uh, if the pilot wants to punch it, 600 miles an hour, right? We fly. I mean, guys, we're flying. We're flying. We're our phones are connecting to uh, outer space, and we're getting information like that. It's just like, my gosh, we have so much at our fingertips, and yet it feels like we have so little of what we want. Like we, we're, we're living in a joyless culture, and I want to talk about this. But, but for Paul, he talks incessantly about joy. In verse 4 of chapter 1, he prays with, with joy. In uh, chapter 1, verse 18, he rejoices that Jesus is talked about. How many of you know that's a good thing? 
Uh, chapter 1, verse 25, he lives to see the Philippians' joy in faith. We find in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul asked the church in Philippi to complete his joy. We find in chapter 2, kind of the end of chapter 2, he rejoices with the church. At the very end of chapter 2, twice, he sends, he tells them he's going to send Ephroditus that the church might rejoice. I think Paul would like a party. Can I get an amen to that? He loves joy. He wants the people to rejoice. We find in chapter 3, verse 1, uh, he tells the church in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, he tells the Philippians that they are his joy. We find in chapter 4, verse 4, um, Paul tells the church in Philippi twice to rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. I love it's the present participle that he uses. Don't worry about what that means. It's just like, it's almost like for, for, for Paul, joy is an ongoing thing, no matter or irrespective of the circumstances that we go through. So the letter here radiates, radiates with joy. What's interesting, we got a problem. Can I talk about this problem a little bit? Uh, the American social experiment is based upon um, this this pursuit of happiness. It's, it, it has a constitutional feel to it. We have kind of this constitutional experiment um, based on or founded upon the Declaration of Independence, and uh, you know what it is. We hold these truths to be what? Self-evident, that all are created. Five of you um, went, uh, like you paid attention in history class, right? Uh, all created equal. Can I get an amen to that? It's kind of a parody, a little bit of, of the gospel, right? We know that uh, everything is level at the foot of the cross. Like you belong and you're a part of God's family, not because of the color of your skin, not because you made it in your mind or you had success or you were a moral exemplar. You belong in the family of God because of grace, because of the story of Jesus, because of his achievements. But it's interesting, we have this constitutional experiment that's like, it's like, it's organized around this pursuit of happiness. Um, but I love that. I think Jefferson, a famous Epicurean, at least I think he's honest about uh, three things in life. We have a right, it's an inalienable right to life. We have life, we also have liberty, but he, he um, and I'm not feeling well, so when I'm not feeling well, I get really philosophical, so just go with me, okay? Uh, he, I, I think he exercises epistemic humility here. What does that mean? It means I think he, he realizes that what he's about to say about joy or happiness doesn't always happen. He, he says we have right, a right to life and liberty. And then the pursuit, it's refreshingly honest, the pursuit of joy. I think Thomas Jefferson was honest about joy it's, or happiness Many times, for many people, it just lies outside of our reach, right outside of our grasp. I think when Thomas Jefferson was writing this, I think he's just kind of winking to himself, like, I, I, who knows, maybe some people will figure out the meaning of life and happiness, but it seems for so many people that it lies outside of our ability to get it. So this Jeffersonian use of pursuing happiness sounds like um, hunting for a mythical creature, and uh, if you're like me, my, probably my greatest, my dream in life would be to go on a Bigfoot hunt. How many of you believe in Sasquatch? How many believe we'll ever find a Sasquatch? I don't think we'll ever find a Sasquatch, right? But it'd be great to go on a hunt. I, how many, it, you know that show, Finding Bigfoot? You ever seen that show before? Okay. I love that show, but it's so discouraging because you get so close to finding something and then they never find anything. To me, that in microcosm is Americans' relationship with happiness. 
We almost get it, but then it's out of our hands. It's like we find ourselves in contentment, and then bam, it's like gone. For example, a couple nights ago, I was on a walk with my family, and we saw this. We lived downtown, and we saw this beautiful sunset. And for like five minutes, I had like just so much joy. I was with with my family. My kids weren't like acting like little psychopaths. They were listening to me. Everything felt right in the world. And then right as I was thinking about joy, uh, the sunset just left. It was like so fleeting. It's funny how uh, things in this world Happiness, contentment, joy, it, it's, it seems elusive to people. Like we get it and then we lose it, right? This is this transient quality to happiness. Happiness for many people seems thin. The texture feels, it's flaccid. It lacks the requisite depth. It's like it's not long enough, right? I wish the sunset could have been long enough. I went to the movie and everyone was saying it was Oscar worthy and I don't get it. Have you ever been there before? Everyone builds your expectations for a movie and then you go to it and you're like, are you kidding me? That was the dumbest thing I've ever seen, right? Because you built your expectations really high and it just, it it can never achieve those. It's funny how things in this world can never ever get to the point where they can satisfy your expectations. And when you finally get in contentment, you realize how quickly it can leave. Now, creation is good. How many of you know creation is good? Things in this world, God invented it, right? God invented relationships. God invented the raw materials that we use to bring satisfaction to our life. But the problem is, is that creation, even though it's good, it's incomplete, it's incomplete. Uh, and I think God has built in transience um, or built in this transitoriness into creation itself to remind us that we cannot rely on things alone. I think the reason why we get maybe frustrated with the stuff that we have that seems so good and yet the happiness is so fleeting because it's a reminder that, and I think God's saying, hey guys, I'm up here, right? I love you guys. You can only get what you're looking for in me. It's funny, I, I remember um, uh, going to the state championship when I was, in 1995, uh, you can get this from Pastor, Pastor Ken was a coach, uh, and he watched high school basketball for a good 30 years in Idaho, and he, out of his own words, said that our team was probably the greatest team ever to come out of the state of Idaho. So uh, we were a good team, I like to brag on my team, uh, 10 guys from that team went to play college basketball. We ended up winning the state championship. And uh, I remember for three years, that's all I wanted. All I wanted was to win the state championship. We went 26-0. and 0, And uh, I remember after winning, beating, uh, who did we? Rigby. And dominated Rigby. And uh, we, we ended up winning. And I remember, like, thinking in that moment, is that all that there is? Like, I thought I would be completed. Like, where's the complete me thing? Like I, like, I just feel like I have more problems. Like, I just, where's the peace? Where's this long-lasting joy? The next day, I'm like, oh, all right, we won the state championship. I mean, I was excited. I enjoyed it. But there's just something transient about, about success, about power, about technology. Like, have you ever been on your phone, and after about three hours, after, like, going through the, the rabbit's hole of, like, wh- whether that's YouTube or whatever, you find yourself crying as you watch kittens play? You know, like, how did I get to this point? Have you ever been there before? Like, it's just, it's amazing how, yes, creation is good, and God's invented good things for us, but it's incomplete. You can't get what you want out of the things in this world. So there's a book in the Bible that talks about this. It's classified as wisdom lit. 
It's called Ecclesiastes. Most Christians, when they read through Ecclesiastes, they, they like in their daily Bible reading plan, they actually don't read it. They just kind of skip to the next book. Uh, it can be a little bit dark. Uh, you have Qualith, this, this author. Uh, he starts by saying, hevel, hevel. Everything is hevel. Hevel is the Hebrew word. It's used 38 times. Hevel simply means smoke, meaninglessness. Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about our Western quest for happiness. This book describes this quest as a cautionary tale for those who seek for satisfaction outside of God. You can hang with Steph Curry for a while, but um, eventually you'll get to the point where you'll understand that Steph Curry is broken himself, and he can't give you what you want. Can I get an amen? And that would be an amazing thing. And if Steph Curry came today and said, hey, I want you to, I want to hang with you, I'd be like, all right, peace. I'm out of here. I'm going to go hang with you. But Steph Curry in and of himself, a relationship, a human, a thing cannot give you what you really want. In it, the author of Ecclesiastes has achieved all the success one could have. Money, fame, absolute power, women, rap God status, rap videos. Just want to make sure you're awake. And comes away with the conclusion, comes away with the conclusion that all is meaningless outside of God. There's no satisfaction in it. We have studies, the Happiness Index uh, study reinforces the message of Ecclesiastes. And uh, they basically state that there's no correlation at all between uh, your income, your wealth, your status, your achievement, the size of your house, whatever, with happiness itself. In fact, there are other studies that say the more prosperous a society grows, the more depressed the people become on a whole. So money is not going to give you what you want. Status, that dream job, that dream relationship cannot ultimately satisfy you. Jonathan Haidt, a moral psychologist, coined the happiness hypothesis, which states that the ancients knew that one could not gain happiness from stuff. You couldn't get it from having a new camel, conquering the world. I don't know, I just want to make sure you're awake, right? Um, Alexander the Great, I don't know if you know this, he conquered the world and then he wept for a week because he had no, he literally felt, felt like he had no more purpose because there was nothing more to conquer. So he wept for a week. And so this hypothesis um, goes like this. We are unhappy even in success because we seek happiness from success. The problem is that success or power or having something can only give you a short-term fix. Having joy in things is Intransient. For example, you buy a house, it's going to happen. Eventually, it's going to get old. You're going to sell it, and you're going to get a new house. You buy a car, it'll eventually break down. Uh, you're going to lose a tire. You're going to have your friend Chris come over and help you for two hours fix your car, right? And on and on and on and on and on, the disappointment goes. So we look for happiness. It's funny, um, last year I did a little study on vacations. How many of you love vacations? I uh, love, about 80, you all right? I love vacations. And uh, I did a little study, and uh, the study kind of went like this. And it was just talking about, you know, just uh, human flourishing and, and how we rest. And I really wanted to go on a vacation, so I wanted to figure this stuff out. I wanted to get the analytics behind it. So um, the study basically says that when you go on a vacation, you come home, and you have a three-day boost, right? You got a three-day lingering boost from your vacation. And then about the fourth day, it all goes away. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. That's, man. Have you ever been there before? You've come home and um, you had a great time in, I don't know, Disneyland or, or maybe you went up north and you went to Iceland or Maui or whatever. You come back and everything feels different. Don't you love that feeling? Your house feels different. Your kids feel different. The city feels different. And then about four days later, it all feels the same. 
what is that? And I, I, I don't want to depress any of you. Hopefully I'm not depressing you. I'm just trying to make a point that um, our, our culture cannot give you what you want. Happiness is momentary. Harvard professor uh, in the early part of the 20th century wanted to discover why people needed meaning. And he wanted to know why it wasn't good enough for people to simply to sleep, work, eat, have, have relationships. Again, these are all good things. Watch football, um, eat bacon and barbecue, and all the men said amen to that. He discovered, apparently we have four men. Okay, anyways. <laughs> I guess we're all depressed this morning. I promise, it's going to get good, okay? Ugh. He discovered something about happiness as he sought for meaning. And he said this, people are only happy if we make the meaning in our life something greater than our happiness. He argued that if someone really wanted happiness, you would need devotion to something beyond yourself. Otherwise, without this, we would be left to ourselves, which he called, in his words, fleeting, capricious, and insatiable. Jeremiah says that life is not contained in the self. You see, there's a psychological need for meaning. Can I get an amen to that? We are meaning-seeking beings. Even in our darkest moments, we ask questions that are meaning-centric. We are seekers of purpose and meaning. This is why having simply food, um, relationships, a home, a family is not enough for people. In late modernity, um, many people have acknowledged uh, that there is a, in, one word, in the words of one pastor, acad academician, there's a meaning-shaped hole in the center of the culture. The reason why happiness or joy is so fleeting is because we've lost the sense of meaning. In other words, our culture has declared death to meaning itself. We have these shapers of our cultural mind that have shaped Western thought about life itself. You go to John Paul Sartre, who wrote a delightful book called In Being and Nothingness. And he wrote this. He said, man is a useless passion. We have Camus, who has shaped how we think as a culture, who argued for the absurdity of life. He talked about the myth of Sisyphus. If you go back to Greek mythology, and in this uh, mythological account, you have a man named Sisyphus who's cursed by the gods to roll up a boulder to the very top of a mountain, and then the next day he would have to do it again ad infinitum or for eternity. This is a way of describing absurdity for Camus and for John Paul Sartre. John Paul Sartre said there's a vacuum of meaning, and the only thing that fills that vacuum is nausea, nausea. At least he's honest. Can I get an amen? That if you remove meaning from your life, you remove the possibility of any kind of joy. But these, cult these cultural engineers of thinking, they've talked about how we have, once you remove um, a sense of meaning, once you believe that this universe is nonsensical, it might at first be superficially troubling, if not terrifying, but is ultimately liberating. This is what is shaping uh, our cultural milieu or our cultural experience. You, you might be saying, Chris, why, why are we talking about this? Because um, if you don't know what you're a part of, usually what happens by osmosis, you start taking on the ideas of your culture or your environment. Let me just say this because some of you are acting a little bit depressed right now. We're Christians and we don't have to be depressed, okay? Uh, but the Christian story 
is emphatic that there is meaning. Not only that, um, but you, you as a person, matter to God. And not only that, what you do on a daily basis, vacuum the floor, like work out, like go to Starbucks, you go to work. You're not just slogging through a nonsensical, meaningless world, but what you do every day matters itself. The Bible even says in Genesis chapter uh, uh, 2, verse 6, that the uh, soil and the dirt is actually sacred. Humans, God created humans out of the soil and the dirt. In fact, matter matters to God. Matter matters. If the soil and the dirt matters, then you certainly matter. What you do matters every single day. There is no such thing as insignificance in your life. There's meaning and there's purpose. But the paradox, and it's kind of a problem too, but the paradox of, and you hear it all over in TV, create your own meaning, construct your own story kind of talk, it's all rooted in the insistence that life has no meaning. The reason why you got to create your own meaning is because life has no meaning. And humans can't handle that because we are meaning-centric, purpose-driven people. So, on this account, for those who are talking about, yeah, you just got to create yourself. Uh, you you got to be an actualized self. You got to take care of yourself. You got to be selfish. You got to find yourself. All of this, ironically, is tethered to the despair of the late modern Western world. Stephen Gold reinforces this Western attitude. Cosmology doesn't give one iota of evidence for purpose or for God. This is his, we don't believe this. Can I get an Amen. But secularists see a universe without apparent purpose and realize that we must forge our own purposes and ethics. But although the universe is purposeless, our lives aren't. We make our own purpose and they're real. We don't believe that. And we think this is an illusion. What I like from the words of Thomas Nagel, and he's refreshingly honest about the secular point of view, when he wrote, even if you produce a great work of literature which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool or the universe will wind down and collapse and all trace of your effort will vanish. The problem is that although there are justifications for most, most things big and small that we do within life, none of these explanations explain the point of your life as a whole. It wouldn't matter if you had never existed. And after you have gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. This is why the secular point of view, in my estimation, if we apply Bible logic, is morally bankrupt. If, and I just want you to think about this. I I apologize for being too cerebral. Actually, I'm not apologizing for being too cerebral. I think we need this for us to truly understand what Paul is saying. If life is absurd, then all moral claims are absurd. If life is nonsensical, if we're slogging through a cold, sterile, meaningless universe, then why, I must ask, do you care about anything? Why do you care about being in a committed relationship? Why do you have moral outrage when you see the Dallas Cowboys lose? Why, why, why do we care about genocide? Why do we care about the rights of people? Why do, we, why, why do we care about anything? Why do we care about children? Why do we care about innocence? If life is ultimately nonsensical, why not sleep all the time? 
Why not just chill in your mom's basement playing Call of Duty until you're 72? Why, why worry about death and psychopaths and what the Democrats or the Republicans are suppo supposedly scheming to do? Why take, why take care of anybody? Why get involved on a missions trip? Why, why do anything? Why care if nothing in this world matters? C.S. Lewis makes a powerful refutation of the strictly materialist universe without meaning. He said this, you might, you might decide to simply have a good time as possible. The universe is a universe of nonsense, goes the argument. But since you are here, if the universe is nonsensical, just grab what you can. Just have fun, right? Unfortunately, you can't, except in the lowest animal sense, be in love with a girl if you know, and keep on remembering that all the beauties, both of her person and of her character, are momentary and accidental pattern produced by the collision of atoms, and that your own response to them is only a sort of psychic um, phosphorescence rising from the behavior of your genes. You can't go on getting very serious pleasure from music if you know and remember that its air of significance is a pure illusion. That you like it only because your nervous system is irrationally conditioned to like it. You may still in the lowest sense have a good time, but just insofar as it becomes very good, just insofar as it ever threatens to push you on from cold sensuality into real warmth and enthusiasm and joy, so far, you will be forced to fill the hopeless disar disharmony between your own emotions and the universe in which you think you really live. So what C.S. Lewis is saying is that happiness is impossible if there is only nonsense. You matter. Your kids matter. How you think matters. What you do every single day matters. Why? Because there's a meaning beyond you that's located in God himself. So what does Paul say about meaninglessness? What does he say about uh, joylessness? Why, why do we live under this cultural malaise or this fog of nonsensical living? Um, he says in Romans chapter 8, and he writes, and he's giving us an answer to this question, that creation is groaning under the weight of cosmic brokenness and corruption. Not only that, uh, he gives a, reason that gives a reason for us not being able to find satisfaction in creation itself. Satisfaction is momentary. He says the reason why we can't find joy in creation itself, in relationships, in stuff, in success, and power, is because creation is broken. This brokenness is not simply an individualistic problem. It's a cosmic one. The cosmos is broken. Call it ontological wreckage. I'll say it this way. Some of you are like, what is that? Call it existence is thoroughly wrecked. Everything from cats to people to hat people to therapists to pastors, politicians, farmers, fashion moguls, cars, iron, I don't know why I mentioned that, mountain ranges, oceans, technology, the full range of existing things are broken. You can't throw money at the problem. Uh, you can't broker a truce with the universe in order to fix your problems. Jay-Z was completely wrong when he underestimated our problems. We have way more than 99 problems. We got nine trillion, nine mil, whatever problems. Our problem is infinite. Not only do we have a cosmic brokenness that runs through everything, this brokenness runs through every human heart in this room outside of Jesus. 
Jesus in Mark chapter 7 declares the human heart to be the source of all evil. Jeremiah prophetically or poetically declares that the human condition is twisted and depraved. The heart is deceitfully wicked. St. Augustine believed that all evil was ultimately a lack of love. He also believed that the origins of happiness, he kind of traces a history of joylessness, and he traces it all the way down to an issue of priority. He believed that the origins of unhappiness was the result of disordered love. In other words, we take the main things as humans, and we make them less important things, and we take less important things, and we make them the main things. Like when you marginalize God in your life, and then you elevate things that are, are less important, but they're important, but they replace God himself, that is the origins of brokenness in our life. That's the origins of rebellion. That's the origins of idolatry. That's the problem that has twisted the human heart, our, our rearrangements of, of priorities, results in the joylessness that many people experience in their life. Just so you know, God has arranged this world in a particular fashion, and if you follow that arrangement, you enter into his joy. Can I get an amen? Practically, or for, for example, there's nothing wrong with loving the Oakland Raiders. Play football, watching them play football, getting your homies, you go to your house, you watch them lose or you watch them win, whatever. By the way, that, this Thursday night was a great game. Congratulations to you, Oakland Raider Nation. But there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is if that becomes more important than taking care of your family. Right? And you know what's wrong with taking care of your family? If you actually place that higher than following Jesus. So the origins of unhappiness is found in the rearrangement or the twisting of priorities. So, you guys want some good news? The good news is that when Jesus was on the cross, he, he put this dislocated cosmos back to rights. When he was on the cross dying of extraordinary pain, he was exhausting all the forces from sin to entropy to death itself in his body. And when on, on the cross, when he broke through his death, the power of death itself, it unleashed God's future world. You see, the cross and the death of Jesus is an answer to this ontological wreckage. It's through the death of Jesus that creation itself is healed. Not just you and your body and your heart, which is true, but at the cross, Jesus in his death exhausted all the powers of evil and unleashed healing into creation itself. It's, it's, it's important for us to understand this. Why did Jesus have to die? Would be, I guess one example would be, let's say you really love the house. It's dilapidated. It's broke down, but it's filled with rats and termites. But you, you, you don't want to tear it down. You, you want to keep it. You just want to change it, right? Before you remodel it, before you change the house, you have to get rid of, right? That's a euphemism, right? Get rid of all the rats, all the termites. And once you get rid of all the rats, all the termites, then you can do the work of new creation. You can rebuild this house. This is, this is what happened at the cross. At the cross, 
Jesus dealt with and defeated all the powers of evil itself. And because he got rid of, eradicated, once and for all, death itself, then through his resurrection, God got to work through remaking our planet, remaking and healing creation itself. So we now come to Philippians chapter 1. Paul gives us, in the verses that we read, kind of a roadmap. I don't like formulas. I like roadmap. Gives us a roadmap into joy. Let me just say this really quick. Joy is a byproduct of following Jesus. Can I just say that from the outset? Um, I think if you want joy, give up trying to be joyful. If you want happiness, give up trying to be happy. What you need to do is you need to focus on Jesus. And the byproduct of focusing on Jesus is that you'll find yourself in joy. Uh, so I, I pick up my daughter at school. We live downtown, as I mentioned before. And so I'll pick her up every, every other day, and there's a little crosswalk. And so uh, we got about maybe 100 yards where we talk about, you know, my little pony and little girl stuff. And she, you know, recess, her new friend, Emma, and how she, you know, uh, she has all these cute little things that she says. And she's such a just beautiful little girl. And so we get to um, the crosswalk, and I just give her one command. There's one command as we cross the street. Uh, one command is, okay, not to, I want you to negotiate traffic, okay? I want you to look this way, that way. And then when it's clear, we'll cross. So you let me know when it's clear. I don't tell her that. I don't tell her to get on a phone and figure out what the traffic is, is like. I tell her to do one thing. I just tell her, grab my hand. That's it. Just take my hand. That's all I want you to do, and I will take care of the rest. I will get you from point A to point B. You don't need to worry about everything in between. You don't need to figure everything out. You just need to give me your hand, and I will take you across the street. I think this is how we enter into joy. It's when we stop focusing on joy, stop focusing on trying to make our life happen, trying to like figure things out. When we start with our baseline every single day is to spend time with Jesus, to focus on him. That's when everything else falls into place. You've heard me say this many times before, and Mark, uh, Francie used to talk about this as well, but my son Wesley has a problem with buttoning his shirts. He always starts from the bottom, just like Drake, and he goes to the top, right? But what happens by the time he gets to that, uh, that last button, his whole shirt is like it's twisted, out of shape. And I think this is what happens with a lot of Christians. We don't start with Jesus every single day. We, we start with our feelings. We start with our circumstances. We start with what, what we have to do. And those are good things. I'm not saying deny how you feel. I'm not saying deny or repress how you feel or deny that you're going through something. But if, if we want to enter into the joy that Jesus has for us, we have to start with him. And in verse one, this is what Paul says. Before he gives us practical advice about how to practice the art of, of, of joy, he says, I just want to, I want to remind you, you are in, everyone say in. You're in Christ. Before you are in Philippi, before you're, man, um, a part of a slave culture, we talked about this last week, before you're uh, in your sickness, 
talk about it today. Before you're in the Republican Party or the Democrat Party, before you're in your family, before you're in your despair, before you're in your loneliness, you are in Christ. Being in Christ is the thing that most defines you. What you're going through, remember, you can go through circumstances, you can go through suffering, you can go through things, but you're not technically in them. You are in Christ and you go through certain things. Those things do not define you mostly. They're a secondary thing. Can I get an amen? Dallas Cowboy fandom, that's a secondary thing. You're a redhead, that's a secondary thing. You have a particular family, that's a secondary thing. Those are secondary identities. Your major or most dominant identity is that you are a Christian. And what does that mean to be in Christ? That means you enter into the story of Jesus. So you no longer live your own story. You're in the story of Jesus. We talk about the future rushing forward into the present. We talk about how there's healing in Jesus. We talk about that new creation now is at work in the story of Jesus. We just talked about how Jesus healed that ontological brokenness through his death. We know that Jesus sustains all things. We know that he is faithful. All the promises of God are yes and amen. We find in verse 6, Paul says, hey, man, Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith. God is faithful to you. When you're in Christ through faith and repentance and baptism, your story is no longer your story. You now enter into the story of of Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's better than money. That's better than LeBron. That's better than hanging with Steph Curry. That's better than a billion dollars. I would rather have the one, possess the one, or be possessed by the one who built the cosmos, who created everything, who gave his life for me than anything else. Paul even says, I love it in Galatians. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. I now live by his faithfulness who loved me and gave himself for me. This is why he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to live is what? Christ. To die is gain. I love Paul says uh, in 104 verses in this letter, he refers to Jesus 40 times. If you were to average that out, that's 2.5 verses where Paul references Jesus. It seems like Paul is obsessed with Jesus. When you start with Jesus, you get joy. When you try to start getting joy, you'll never get into joy and contentment and healing, come on, from the brokenness in your life. Can I get an Amen. So being in Christ is your primary identity. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, struggled with melancholy and hopelessness and despair. Some scholars think he had bipolar. Some days he'd have good days. Some days he'd wake up just feeling off. And so he would use a Latin phrase, baptiza tu sum, I am baptized. What is he reminding himself? He was declaring over his body, my melancholy, my physical condition is not the most defining thing of my life. My story in Christ is the most defining thing in my life. So my question for you today is, do you believe this? Like we believe this on Sundays. I'm sorry, it's easy to believe this on Sundays. But do we believe this on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday when your boss said that crazy thing, right? 
is suspended nursing. He said, ah, I think I need you to work on the weekend, right? Or when you're sick on the couch, puking your guts out, watching football, whatever. Is, is this something that you believe? Because I believe for most Christians, we don't need more information. We don't need more knowledge, and I love knowledge. What we need mostly is to believe. But the problem is, is that we confuse. We make a category mistake. We confuse knowing something about Jesus as actually believing in Jesus. And the two are different. The reason why some of us are in Christ, but we're not experiencing his joy, is because we don't believe we are in Christ. And we allow other false narratives to define us. Well, your dad was an alcoholic, so you're an alcoholic. Or your, your dad was in, in pornography, so you're going to be addicted to pornography for the rest of your life. Or you allow your past to haunt you and shape how you think about your future. Your story is being in Christ. John 15 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. But Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, man, if you, want, if you want my joy, if you want my fruitfulness, don't worry about that. I'll, I'll do that for you. I just want you to abide in me. I love this story, Jehos Jehoshaphat. Some of you, one of you needs to name your son Jehoshaphat. Second Chronicles chapter 20, it's fascinating. We've talked about this before. Um, Jehoshaphat is made aware that three, I think it's three armies, have aligned against Jerusalem. He doesn't know what to do, so he sets himself to seek God. He commits the whole nation to, to fast. Verses uh, 6 through 12, uh, he cries to God in prayer. And then he has his confessions, which, again, is really honest. And you can find this in verse 12. He says three things. Um, God, I have no power. I think if you want joy, you need to start here. I have no power nor do I know what to do. Like, honestly, do we really know what we're doing? We pretend to know what we're doing every single day, but come on, when it comes down to it, I just don't think we really know what we're doing. Jehoshaphat says, we have no power, nor do we know what to do, but he, he says this, and I think this is the beginning point of joy, but my eyes are on you. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna sweat the other stuff. I'm not gonna sweat how this is gonna happen. I'm not gonna sweat the armies. I'm not gonna sweat my fear and my anxiety and my questions, because I know you're gonna answer those questions. I am just gonna set my eyes on you. Being in Christ is your story. Believing that, focusing on that, declaring that over yourself, over your family is essential as a roadmap into joy. Number two, if you wanna practice joy, if you wanna enter into joy, you gotta start with thanksgiving. We thank our way into new thinking. Can I get an amen? Thanksgiving is powerful because in giving thanks, you go beyond how you think into how God thinks about things, and that's when you truly begin to think like a Christian and really begin to enter into God's joy. Gratefulness or gratitude or giving thanks is a memory tool. It reminds you, when you start to thank God for all the good things, you realize, oh my gosh, I have forgotten about all the good things that God has done for me. Let me just tell you a, a, a secret that I learned uh, the last few years, that there's a thing called entropy that applies to every single person here. It's called everything winds down. Everything drifts towards scarcity. Everything drifts, your thinking drifts towards negativity. 
the way you disrupt that. When you wake up, have you ever woke up in the morning and you had like eight different negative thoughts? I woke up this morning sicker than a dog. And I had the five weirdest thoughts. I'm like, man, that's crazy. But I had to practice Thanksgiving. I don't feel well. To be honest, I don't want to see these red chairs this morning, right? And God, I hope I don't embarrass myself by throwing up on stage. But I thank you, God. You've, you've, I've been sick before. And I remember you helped me get through it before. And I thank you. You're going to give me the strength today to do all things. It's amazing when you start practicing Thanksgiving, especially over people. Relationships are messy. People are messy. People are are irrationally stupid. Can I get an amen to that? We all are. We're broken. The reason why many of us don't have joy is because we don't find joy in the people that we have relationship with. Why? Because, again, it's the law of entropy. You've allowed, it's funny how we do this. Like we, ma- we magnify people's weaknesses and we minimize their strengths. Thanksgiving disrupts that. When you start thanking God for people, even people you don't like, that's when you begin to see things from God's perspective. That's when you're set free from anxiety and fear and worry and frustration and bitterness. It can be hard at times, but when you grit your teeth and you like, you thank God for something, I don't, even if you can't think of anything, you thank God for something. Well, I'm just glad that they have oxygen in their lungs. That's a good starting point. When you do that, God begins to change your heart. Paul, he said in verses three and four, so I thank God for some of you. He says all of you. Come on, let's just, let's do a thought experiment. I'm sure there are people in this church that just rub Paul the wrong way. I'm sure no, no one's ever experienced that here at this church. But Paul, he thanks God for all of them. It's in thanksgiving where you get God's perspective. You get his heart. You remember the good things, not just the bad things. And that's the starting point for reconciliation. And that's the starting point to disrupt the anxiety and the frustration and the bitterness of your heart. Can I get an amen? Number three, really quick. Paul says if you want joy, uh, he talks about in verse five and six, he talks about partnership. He talks about mission and friendship. He uses a Greek word, koinonia. We'll talk about this next week. Koinonia is when you have friends who are on a mission who are centered around Jesus. It says there's nothing greater than that. When you have friends, deep friendship. How many of you want some deep friends? Not only that, but you have deep friends that you can talk about anything and everything, but you're also on mission God's project of remaking the world is working through you guys. You're not just talking about fun things, but you're talking about Jesus. You're reading your Bible together. You're holding each other accountable. You're loving Jesus together. Jesus is the starting point of your friendship. Hey, if Jesus is not the starting point of your relationships or friendships, those friendships inevitably will be based on proximity or affinity, as one pastor says. If your starting point or your shared baseline is not Jesus, relationships cannot truly be what you want them to be. It's only in Jesus that we experience true friendship. What's fascinating is a neuroscientist, I'm almost done here, uh, he, he, uh, for a decade, he wanted to figure out um, and he wanted to study decision making. And he found that when two people are in each other's company, 
this is fascinating, their brain waves will look nearly identical. Just interacting with each other, something happens in the brain. He writes, the more we study engagement, that being next to certain people aligns your brain with them. The people you hang out with actually have an impact on your engagement with reality beyond what you can explain. The effect is that you become alike. He concludes that if people want to maximize happiness, this is his talk, and minimize stress, that you should build a life that requires fewer decisions by surrounding yourself with people who have human flourishing traits. What is he saying? I don't think he's saying this. What am I saying? I'm saying based on this, if you're with somebody, your brainwave becomes identical with somebody else's brainwave. So I'm making an argument. Joy is not just taught, it's caught. If you want more joy, be around a joyful person. Man, if you're, bum- like, if you're, just, like, if you're melancholy, depressed, th- that's, there's no judgment here. We go through sometimes horrible seasons, and God knows what we go through, and there's comfort. Can I get an amen for those difficult seasons that we go through? Sometimes we're in seasons when we can't outthink our way out of melancholy and despair. What you need is to get with somebody who has joy. The joy of the Lord is their strength, and that will rub off on you. This is why we need each other. This is why we can't serve Jesus alone, because we're all going to go through good times and bad times. And when we go through the bad times, we need each other to bring comfort and grace. Uh, I think the fourth thing as I end here, we need to anticipate God's remaking of the world. Paul mentions, I want you to focus on the day, everything you do, everything you do in the present is, is an anticipation of the day when Jesus comes back. I don't know if you know this, but world history is not winding, winding down. World history is heading somewhere. The last, in, in, in other words, uh, the last word over creation will not be death, sickness, disease. Oops, God's saying, I, I tried really hard. We didn't make it, people. I'm gonna throw creation into a cosmic dun- dumpster fire. No, God is ruling the present space-time universe. And even though it's muddled, even though we live in a hyper-polarized world where things feel crazy and things don't always make sense, Jesus is moving human history to the point where he will have the last word. And the last word is not death, it's not tears, it's not sorrow, it's not sighing. What is it? It's new heavens and it's new earth. It's glory flooding the entire cosmos. It's lions turning vegetarian. It's evil fully being eradicated as Jesus comes back. The new temple we find in Revelation 21, 22 comes down. New heavens, new earth come together. The last word over creation will be God's word. And it will be a word of healing. And new heavens and new earth will be filled not with tears, but with inexpressible joy. Are you anticipating this? a little dizzy, but just go with me. Are you anticipating this? Isn't it funny how we just, we look forward to the weekends, that's great. We look forward to a movie, that's great. I love it when my kids, we told them in June that we're taking them to Disneyland about a week before we took them. And that entire week, it was funny how that vision of going to Disneyland changed how they behaved that entire week. 
Hebrews chapter 12 says, for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured it all. For the joy that was set in front of Jesus, he endured every pain. So Quincy endured everything he had to do with a smile on his face. He cleaned his room. He didn't talk back. He didn't kick his bro in the clavicle. We had peace for a week. Why? Because Disneyland was their future. They were anticipating one day they would be singing zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day on Splash Mountain. What are you anticipating? Are you just looking at the end of the week? Do you just have a 10-year plan, 15-year plan? Throw that away. I want you to anticipate if you really are serious about following Jesus, that at the end of everything, God will have the last word and every tribe and tongue and nation will gather at the throne of God singing his praises. And there will be no more tears. And there will be no more sighing. This is, this is how we navigate and negotiate the trials and the suffering that we experience. At the end of the age, we will have our resurrected bodies. You will see your lost family members. And we will gather together under the shalom God putting the world back to rights, singing the best songs you've ever heard, crying your face off. You're not crying in sadness, but you're crying with joy as you're holding the hands of your uncle, as you're holding the hands of your grandfather, as you're holding the hands of your children. Come on, somebody. Is there anything more glorious than this? And finally, we end. I love this. Verse 7 and 8, there's joy in knowing how much God loves you. Paul, he's such a hugger. I love how God changed his heart. He says, I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. That word affection in the Greek means my guts, my kidneys, my bowels yearn for you. You find in the New Testament, in Mark, it says that Jesus was moved with compassion for the people. If you translate that, that simply means that the bowels of Jesus were moved with compassion. What, what is that saying? It's saying that God loves you with his very essence. There's, parents, you know this. It's weird. It's like you love your kids from like, it's not just superficial. It's like from the guts inside of you. You think about your kids, you have this visceral relationship with your kids. When you know your Father in heaven loves you like that, when you know that you are in Christ and being in Christ means that what the Father said over Jesus in his baptism, you are my son and whom I'm well pleased. When you know that love, that God loves you with an everlasting love, that God fills your life with his grace and his goodness, that's when you experience joy unspeakable. And when you know that love, you start loving people like that with your guts. It's called love trauma. You love the world with your guts. You love the racist with your guts. You still speak the truth to the racist, but you love them from your guts. You speak to those who don't know Jesus, and they might persecute you, but you love them from your guts because you know the love of your Father. And when you know that kind of love, 
you'll know joy. Joy unspeakable. When you're anticipating God's future world, you can handle anything. Can I get an amen? When you practice gratitude, you'll be able to thank God for problem people. It will set you free from resentment and bitterness. And when you know you are in Christ, you'll know that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Can you bow your heads, close your eyes? Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.